What's up, Ben? How you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. How's things these days? You just finished a book? Crazy. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> crazy. I think I'm I'm experiencing the I don't know if you had this, like the fear that okay, it's it started well and the initial feedback has been good, but is this about to fall off a cliff? Mm. You know, will this last for a couple of weeks? Did you have that too, where it was just that fear of okay, yeah, it started well, but is this going to continue or, you know, am I just celebrating it now while it lasts? Um, similar. So I think just like you, our book was a uh, number one new release um, several months before it came out. So I think for Matt and me, that put a lot of pressure on us, I would say early on. I mean, this was like several months before it was due out. So I think by the time it was published, I don't know. I had this like weird feeling of just resignation. Like it just is what it is at this point. Like, you know, whatever happens, happens. Um, but then you also realize with, I don't know about you, but with, with, with a lot of publishers, like you're responsible for marketing the book too. Yep. So in a lot of cases, it's like what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously the, the marketplace has to, you know, determine your book is worthy of um, being worth, I guess, continuing. Right. And, uh, selling, but, um, but yeah, so I don't know. I was, it was, I felt like really resigned, I suppose, in some ways when it first came out, I think it was maybe a sense of relief. It was over, but yeah, I don't know. What do, what are you, uh, what are you feeling like at this second? <laughs> yeah. The relief phase for me, I think was May. Okay. Cause the, the final version and every, all the editing and all that ended in the middle of April, well, the beginning of April. And, you know, I didn't, I had to catch up on all the work that had, sort of fallen, uh, fallen by the wayside while I was writing the book and then hit May and it was sort of that, ah, oh, I'm not writing a book. I'm caught up uh, getting back into a normal routine. And then, yeah, realizing I was on the hook for marketing, I had yeah. to get the word out about it. And yeah, I think I'm starting to get into that pressure phase where I'm worried about how it's performing, how it's going to be received, what people are going to review it, you know, how are they, they really going to think of it once they've finished reading it? How is it going to help people? Is anyone going to be able to implement any of this and be successful? Because right. it works with the classes, but I, I just, you know, now I have to see, does it translate? Does the book end up being just as successful as the classes were for people? Because that for mm -hmm. me is sort of the measure. If I get people that say, yeah, I tried this and it worked. It's like, okay, now it's a real thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's the pressure I'm under right now is will that happen? Will it start, you know, getting testimonials versus, yeah, it was a fun read. It's, I don't know, man. I, I book reviews are just one of those things where I feel like it's, um, it's the internet, right? So I, I yeah. the way we dealt with this in, in a lot of ways is, um, you know, so I don't know about you, but we had a lot of tech reviewers and reviewers for our book while we were writing it. And I, and I picked people who are very curmudgeon -y and like people who just beat the shit out of you. Um, yep. Because I, I felt like it's like, you know, sparring and getting ready for a boxing match or something. As I always tell people, you know, you want to have sparring partners that are going to push you. Um, so the time you get to um, your match, you're not feeling overwhelmed. Obviously, you're going to feel overwhelmed anyway, but you want a lot of your weak spots dialed out. Right. And so I felt like that was all we could do, because by the time it hits the marketplace, as, as we both know, it's um, the world has a different way of dealing with things. And, and so Bill Inman told me this one time, you know, maybe it's you know, he's written like 67 books or something crazy. Yeah. But like 
his advice was, I mean, there's always going to be a percentage of people that hate your guts, no matter what you could be mother Teresa. Um, you know, so people are going to hate you. There's always, so it's like with with a book, you're going to get bad reviews. You're going to get reviews. Like I had one review where it was like this, um, this book is, is not, is not about data science. It's about data infrastructure. And it's like, nah, no shit. It's like clearly on the title, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. Yep. Just, yeah. you know, we had, I had editors and uh, they did, I think it was three rounds, three different rounds of editing, but my books, you know, like one of 12 that's ever been written about this, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. one reason why I'm a little nervous. It's, it is an emerging side of the field, and not only from a data science perspective, but also from a business strategy perspective. Mm. So the two sides that I'm talking to are, they're getting introduced to this concept for the first time through my book. And the reviewers, I swear, the reviewers kind of read it and they went, well, grammatically, it's great. I enjoyed reading it. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like you know, we didn't really have anyone, you know, they said, who's an expert reviewer? And I thought, well, I don't really have a good answer for that. Um, we need somebody who understands strategy and who understands technology. And it was just, the well, diagram seems really small. Yeah. It was a really small Venn diagram. So we got, you know, we did the best that we could for editing and got some smart people to take a look at it and give some feedback. But yeah, I don't feel like it went through the paces that a lot of other books go through. And I think that's part of my nervousness mm. is I had a research assistant helping me out. And, uh, you know, the publisher provided two different rounds of uh, of review and editing. But it didn't get that thorough beating that, you know, a research paper or probably your book did. And so that's for me, that's kind of the nervousness is how will this be received by both sides? Interesting. And, and business strategy, I mean, tell me about this. It, it To me, it feels like it's one of those sort of nebulous areas where everybody has an opinion. So, and, and it's, and it's, and it's interesting because it, it almost feels like there's a lot of counterfactuals in, in business mm-hmm. strategy as well. So it would be hard to know if you're right or wrong. So well, I don't know. What did that feel like writing a, a business strategy uh, type of a book? It's interesting because I've been working towards this for it's over eight years now. Mm-hmm. And what I found out was exactly what you said, that most strategy is exactly that. It's nebulous. It's subjective. It's an opinion in search of data. So what I did was start figuring out, okay, if I was going to approach this as a data science problem, how would I break it down? How would I turn it into something that's supportable? because strategy is supposed to be forward-looking and prescriptive. So, you know, part of it is risk. Part of everything is risk and belief. So there's that piece that you can never take away. You have to be willing to accept risk. And so I just began to create frameworks because you're right. Strategy is different for every business. Strategy is evolutionary. Technology is evolutionary. And so I created this series of frameworks and there's over 20 frameworks presented in the book Wow, that deal with, and I changed the way I taught. I, I mean, this has really been, like I said, eight years of trying to figure out how to take business strategy and turn it into something that you can measure that you can repeat as a process. And that's where the frameworks came from. And I started teaching systems models and frameworks 
because business deals with different business systems. You need models to understand those systems and then you need frameworks to interact with them and to successfully navigate them. And the frameworks have to, they have to generalize. And I think that was the biggest challenge was going from teaching, this is how you do it to teaching, here's the framework and here's how multiple companies have implemented this framework or something similar to it. And here's what the outcome was. Here's companies that didn't implement one of these types of frameworks and here's what the outcome was. So you can kind of, you know, and you begin to explain how data science can be applied to strategy planning. Because when you, when you look at the two, the, they follow the same life cycle and they really should complement each other better than they do because the business is dealing with complexity. And one of the things models do better than anything else is help manage complexity. So there's, there's a natural interaction. I say data scientists are strategic by nature because that's the nature of our roles. We're there to help reduce uncertainty, mitigate risk, optimize systems, reduce levels of effort, automate parts of the business model and the operating model. So there's a natural tie-in and connection. That's the evolution of the book was getting from fuzzy business strategy to something that's measurable, repeatable, quantifiable, you can continuously improve it. You look at it as we make decisions on best available data, but we have to understand that data is going to improve. So we have to change the way we just make decisions. And instead of punishing someone for saying I was wrong, that's rewarded if the data changes. Well, yeah, you're going to have better data about the future in six months than you do now you may find out that you were wrong in that initial decision. So uh, that's where I went with it is how do I incorporate data science into strategy planning? And if we did this in a way that was measurable, that incorporates data and models, what would the firm look like? There's a lot to unpack here. So <laughs> yeah, let's go back to the, go back to the notion of the frameworks, right? Mm -hmm. So, you said that you were starting from something very fuzzy and nebulous and you came to, what was it, 20 frameworks or something like that? Yeah, ended up being over 20. Oh, wow. Um, how many pages is this book, by the way? Over three, it's 352 pages. They they finally had to, you know, pull me off the stage with a cane and say, stop writing <laughs> because I was, I was supposed to stop at 250 and then it just kept going. I said, oh, I need to add a chapter on this. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So I've got to update this chapter. Okay. So I'm going to split this into three chapters. And yeah, they finally said, no, that's it. Stop. Just stop so, writing. So was the page count correlated with the number of frameworks that you kept coming up with or, or were these kind of separate? Well, I had all these frameworks in advance because that, it's part of the courses that I teach. And that came from seminars that I started up in 2015, 2016. So this is all really a body of work. And that was sort of the problem is that since I have a bigger body of work, I didn't want to stop. You know, I got, I didn't create a stopping point and say everything after this is, you know, this is a different book or this is a different topic. So I didn't have a hard stopping point like I should have. <laughs> so th send your uh, editors a box of chocolate for that or something. So, Oh yeah. I, I owe them dinner someplace really nice because they put up with, Oh, 
<laughs> just repeated, hey, I've got to rewrite this. Okay, no, no, I need to add a couple of things to this. And yeah, it yeah. Was, I was that author. <laughs> I think I was too. Maybe not, not Maybe not to that quite degree, but you, you were also dealing with, um, I guess, some real life inflection points real time inflection points happening yep. while you're writing, especially this year, <laughs> right? Because yep. um, I don't know, some things happened in data science and AI. Yeah. So a few developments. <laughs> yeah, started writing this in November, finished it in the beginning of February. And Wait, then started writing start the book in November of twenty two. Yep. End wow. of November. Yeah. And then uh had to rewrite it between the beginning of February and the end of March to incorporate everything that had happened. And one of the interesting things was I had to, because the book wasn't coming out until July till right now. So I was writing I had hard stop in the end of March. And so the book is, I mean, it's almost like GPT three, five where training stopped, but mm. it has to answer questions about what's going on today. So I had to put things in the book that would make sure that it didn't sound obsolete when it came out right now. So there are, you know, it's going to be interesting. People are going to read this book and go, Oh yeah, I know. You know, he's, he's talking about obvious things, but they don't realize I wrote some of this in February and March. So some of the things that have happened, especially with copilot and some of the new features that haven't come out of visual studio or VS code yet, but will in the next uh, probably quarter, all of those I wrote back in February and March and they are now releasing or they released between when I stopped writing and now. So that was that was the challenge. And one of the reasons why I kept rewriting, revising and adding pieces, because every time someone had made an announcement, I was able to fill in some of the parts that I'd left almost as a sort of placeholder. Interesting. So how much did the evolution of AI this year change either the data science part of your book or the strategy part of your book? Like what was impacted more? it didn't really change any of the frameworks. It was really validating. And so what I was doing was putting the use cases in to explain why some of the more advanced elements of each one of the frameworks were necessary. And that was what really kept me revising and revising is because these frameworks are meant to take companies from a level, I call it a level zero maturity, where you're at the very earliest phase of maturity all the way to a level four. And mm. most of the level four really advanced models and GPT, any sort of generative AI model fits into that level four category. And so as Microsoft was rolling out Copilot, it was an excellent case study that I could put in and explain, this is how you monetize it. This is why you use this framework and talking about how these generative models, all you need is data and you can leapfrog now. You can go from having data to leveraging these third-party models. So that's what it really was. That's why I was continuously rewriting. It wasn't so much that I was changing anything that I was saying, mm. but I finally had something that I could use and point to as validation for, this is why you do these things. This is what happens if you do things well. This is how, and especially the Microsoft, Google back and forth dynamic, you know, talking about some of the maturity frameworks that I have, the product lifecycle maturity framework and explaining how you have to make space in products. It, it was a validating, I guess, component. And so I wanted to put as much of that into the book as possible because there were case studies that I've never had before. I've always had to talk about, 
abstract components, some of the stuff's internally being used by companies, but GPT was really the first public release where I could explain why you did some of the things that you did with the frameworks. Mm. That's interesting. I think around late last summer of 22, right? So I, I was sort of, I don't know, I was talking to some friends. And I was like, I feel like there's going to be another uh, kind of ML AI winter coming. And then obviously there was a kind of the hold my beer moment when OpenAI did the uh, chat GPT. But, you know, I guess counterfactually, it's it's interesting because, I mean, if you're if you're to have written the book and um, and chat GPT and, you know, all the, you know, the interest in AI hadn't happened this year. I mean, what 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 do you think? Um, what kind of book do you think you would have had? I wouldn't have had as many case studies for, and I think this is why I ended up going as far as I did and having as many, you know, as really as many chapters over is because at the very beginning, the book wasn't focused on that super advanced sort of AI and machine learning capabilities because I just didn't have enough support for it. And there are frameworks that I didn't include in the book because companies outside of like Meta and Google won't need to implement these frameworks for two or three years. Right. So there's other frameworks that I just don't have any case studies for. So it would sound sci-fi-ish. And so the book that if I had written it a year earlier that would have come out would not have included as much of the level four frameworks and that really more forward-looking and prescriptive part of the book. So it would have been you know, more what can you do right now? What can you do in the next two years? but I would have completely missed the generative AI uh, component. And I think that would have made it a less valuable book. I would have talked mm. about a lot of things that would extend and support it, but wouldn't have gone into the depth that I could because I had all of these use cases and because I could explain it with real world examples instead of sounding like, you know, I'm writing the next American sci-fi novel. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good point. Cause a lot of this does sound like sci-fi. Yep. Um, you know, especially uh, chaining models together. I mean, just the amount of interest and the amount of a, I would say, daily innovation that happens now mm -hmm. is just pretty, pretty cool and also crazy to watch. But yeah, if you were to go back last year, this wasn't the topic of discussion. We were talking about the metaverse and we were talking about, um, you know, the death of, death of Web three and everything, right? Um, and yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so these uh, these levels. Mm -hmm. uh, walk me through what these levels are. You mentioned a level four. Maybe yep. is there a level zero level? Negative one, one. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I think there's, yeah, I think there's definitely a negative one, but I'm not gonna, I won't call any companies out and say, you know, right. hey, this would be a negative one company. But zero is uh, everything's haphazard. Nothing's intentional. So we're using technology, but we don't know, really, we don't use it in a directed fashion. It's where a lot of businesses are. They are using technology to support operations. They have technology integrated into products, but they don't have it done in an intentional way where there's a roadmap for we're starting here and we're going to this is the point that we're going to next and that's short-sighted it's one of the reasons and cloud is what made me realize this it's kind of nice to be old sometimes because you see the same <laughs> things come back over and over again and when we were going from just traditional software digital apps to cloud we put we dug our feet in as software developers, I don't know if you made the same mistake that I did, but we really dug our feet in. We said, you know, we'll build for that when we get there. Mm -hmm. And then we got there and we said, you know, it, it, there's, you know, it's too much technical debt. We said, it's too much effort. We can't take this thing down for that long. You know, we'll get to it later. 
and that's what really made me realize that if you're making technical decisions, you have to have some strategic underpinnings. And one of those components is realizing that technology is inevitable. If you're mm. building digital apps, cloud's inevitable. You, you will. That there's no way that you were escaping it. And if we'd have thought that way, it would have been faster and cheaper to get to that next adoption cycle. And so that's what the maturity framework really helps you do is, yeah, you're at a low maturity level right now. Who cares? That's where everybody is. Right. Even people that have advanced model capabilities, they're not following the maturity framework. And so data is being gathered unintentionally. And that's where phase one comes in is you just go from gathering data haphazardly and implementing technology haphazardly to making a connection to workflows and realizing that you're going from digital to data. And after data, you've got level two, which is advanced analytics, basic descriptive models. Level three is when you bring in machine learning and you do some basic experimentation. You take control of the data generation process. And then you go to a level four where you're using more advanced deep learning, you're using causal methods. And you're going from sort of at level one, you've built a data catalog to at level four, you're beginning to implement ontologies. And you've really transitioned from an early stage of data maturity and AI maturity to being able to deliver advanced models to production. You're getting over 50% of your new revenue from data and AI. So, and the hard thing is that the alignment has to happen from a technology standpoint, customer and user standpoint, stakeholders, C-level leaders, sometimes investors and board of directors, customers have to be part of this. And so it's an enterprise-wide change and transformation. And so with the maturity model, it was not just talking about it from a product standpoint, from a technology standpoint, from a business strategy standpoint, but everything in between. Because if they don't align, this doesn't work. So what about companies that are seeing a lot of the cool AI out there, say they're a level one, they want to jump straight to level four. Is that doable? If you understand how to structure your data properly, and that's really one of the reasons why going from unintentional data gathering to intentional data gathering, making that connection to the workflow creates, uh, some people call it business context. Uh, metadata is another way of explaining it, but connecting it to the workflow is a connection to the system that generates the data. And once you have that, that's why I say you go from a data catalog to at level four in ontology. And so there's this long cycle where that metadata starts out really simple and just explaining where the data came from, what was the data generating process and some of that provenance behind it to really explaining the connection between the concepts that you're bringing in, the, some of the fields, some of the features that you're building out. So that's the evolution of it. And your data will eventually follow that same arc. There's really no way to skip that. But when it comes to the models themselves, now that we have these foundational models that are available from third-party providers, you don't have to build out the capabilities in every single one of these deep learning niches. Right. You're not going to have to have like a computer vision team. You're not going to have to have an advanced NLP team. You're not going to have to have like a robotics team and a 
you know, each one of these components that we've been thinking every company has to build out, mm -hmm. it's no longer the case. In order to get to that level four maturity, you just need really well-structured data at that level one and an understanding of how to productize and partner with these foundational models. And if you can do that, you can leapfrog. And you will eventually want to build your own capabilities in-house because some models will be in-house, others will be dependent upon third-party foundational models. So it'll be a hybrid. It's not like data teams are going away, but companies have an opportunity to leapfrog by leveraging good quality data and foundational models. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about too. I've been uh, working on a new book on data modeling um, and there's different schools of thought right now, right? So what I, I've been writing basically data modeling as a formal practice is dead. Um, and actually the, uh, well, or life support, maybe it's not quite dead, but it's not quite alive. Um, <laughs> the, um, but I think they have a good incentive to, to revisit a lot of these things, right? So, um, and not just physical data modeling, which I think, you know, is kind of what we think of when we think of data modeling, but you brought up some interesting things, right? So concepts, that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. So mm -hmm. having um, an understanding of the concepts that you're trying to convey as a business or use as a business vocabulary, um, you know, how those concepts relate to the processes, the workflows, et cetera, that you do. I think I want to get your take on this. Does it seem like the, these are going to be more important as we're, um, you know, leveraging these foundational models or, or should we just leave data modeling to the dustbin of history and forget about it? Well, I don't know what the right approach is. I think yeah. that's really important to, to the conversations that we're having uh -huh. is I don't know what the right approach is. And I don't think any of us do. I mean, you and I have both yeah. been doing this for a very long time. Yeah. And I think the longer you're here, the more you say things like, I'm not sure what the perfect approach is, mm -hmm. but here's the best one I've found. Right. And I, I think that's really where we can begin a good discussion on what's the optimization path. What is the best solution look like? And that means we have to talk about what we're optimizing for. And it's not just what we're building today, but what we're going to have in two to three years. Because that's, I think the part that gets left out of these conversations is businesses can't continuously adopt the cutting edge solution. They have to adopt something today and it has to evolve to meet their needs in two years, three years, five years, because this infrastructure is expensive. Architecting mm -hmm. systems, designing data models, it, it's very expensive. And if you have to continuously redo it yeah. every year to two years, it's prohibitively expensive. So that's one of the reasons I talk about, you know, continuous transformation. And I said, technology is inevitable. That's, that's what, you know, really we're struggling with and we're kind of grappling with is mm -hmm. we can predict the high level stuff. We know at a top level where this goes, you're talking about concepts. I'm talking about concepts. I mean, everyone's really, we're all going in the same direction. Yeah. And if you look at other sciences, we can pull a lot from other disciplines. Like biology has been building ontologies, really complex ontologies for a very long time. We've got information science, which provides even more context and information, mm -hmm. you know, and best practices around creating these knowledge graphs and maintaining knowledge graphs. And every time I describe an ontology to somebody who's doing machine learning or deep learning, they go, you know, that sounds like a cheat code. 
for training deep learning models. And you go, yeah, right. that's what you want it. It mm -hmm. should be an input into your training. It should be part of your training data. Yeah. Because you're right. It's a cheat code. It tells you what all these things, how all of these things connect to each other. And so if you have that plus examples of the connections, you have a really powerful and highly accurate model. So we know we're going to ontologies. We know we're going there. What the architectural components are, we don't really know that. Mm -hmm. But the business can still, and data science teams can still get ready and start making decisions today that are based on what is knowable, what we will inevitably be doing. And that helps you find solutions that are, you know, they'll meet your needs today, but they're also positioning because you talk about roadmaps and ask each company, what's your roadmap? What are you thinking about in two years? What are you thinking about in three years? Where are you going? And if their roadmap aligns well with your vision for what's two years from now, what's three years from now, then you're probably making a good decision. But it's that sort of thinking that, you know, people like you are doing the, the hard work where you're defining at the ground level, this is the optimal solution. This is based on, you know, 50 approaches that I've evaluated. Here's at the ground floor, how you implement Mm -hmm. But we also have sort of a higher level decision process and yeah. your level of certainty is really a 12 to 18 month time horizon. The business needs 36 to 48 months. And so there are really two levels that we need to speak to when we have these conversations. One is here's how you make good decisions past a certainty horizon. And the other one is here's, you know, me extending your certainty horizon. So, you know, and you can see where both of our parts of the field really come together to help different parts of the business. Switching gears a bit. So you also give a lot of advice, career advice to people. Um, I've been struggling with this too. I, I can't tell if the world and the practices have changed in the last, um, at least what month is it now? Um, well, just July now, so <laughs> that many months um, <laughs> since this whole thing happened. Um, you know, if you're if you're a new data science graduate, for example, right? Uh, you know, you're fresh in the market, albeit a very crappy market too, by the way, job wise, yeah. it's not great. Um, you know, it, but you you learned all these traditional approaches uh, in school, right? You learned you know, random forests, and you learned um, you know basically the SK learn, um, you know SDK, and and so forth, maybe some R. And now you're confronting a world where there's foundation models, large language models, which they, I wagering to guess they did not teach you in school um, at all. Because um, universities yep. tend to be a bit slower on things. Um, what, what are your advice to, to grads coming out in this kind of, uh, um, seems like it's almost an alternate reality from the one that they're trained to, to graduate in. I, honestly, I think that's been a problem for a lot longer than we've been talking about it. Mm. I think the majority of data science training is always two years behind. That's mm -hmm. been for me, one of the biggest gripes that I have about more traditional educational routes is that they train based on a curriculum built last year, based on the, the technology landscape the year before that. So if they get all, there, yeah. Yeah. And so you're looking at, you know, two years usually behind where the field is. And our field, every about six months, we have something big happen. 
mm-hmm. not you know gpt big <laughs> that's that was pretty big that, yeah. yeah that was a little bigger than most <laughs> of what we do but we have these large advances and changes about every six months and gpt is where it starts it's not where it stops right. this is the first one and now we're starting to see these larger and i think maybe we'll see these every 12 to 18 months where you have these really big changes and shifts and new technologies Mm-hmm. But we've been doing this on a smaller scale, smaller stage for since I got into the field where you're always continuously learning. So looking at a college degree, it's almost it shouldn't be trying to teach you leading edge. It should be all foundational concepts so that no matter what we do next, you can pick up the paper and go, oh, yeah, I got it. OK, no yeah. problem. Right. And that's what I think we need to focus on teaching is not only the foundational concepts, but everything that you need to be able to pick up any sort of research, any new framework, any new infrastructure component and get it and have a, a you know some sort of framework to figure out, does this fit my needs or my business's needs better than what we have right now? Or is this something we're just going to pass on? Is we, Should we wait on this one? I think that's what college should, should aim for. Boot camps need to be more on leading edge. They should be three to six months behind. And I think that's the purpose of a good boot camp is someone who has foundational concepts, but maybe in a different domain and wants to transition into data science. And it gets them closer to that job. But I would say anybody graduating from college, you have to skate to where the field is. Mm. And you're coming into the job market, like you said, that's just so bad. It's every company now is just figuring out that they need a data science, data practice. And so they, they're hiring senior level and senior, what I call senior plus plus. They're not really looking for entry level because they need to build the practice first and the capability first, and then start to fill out a larger pipeline that's going to replenish those, you know, the mid-level and senior ranks. They're hiring leaders and there's, there are no leaders. We do such a terrible, you know, it's not Mm. data scientists fault. We just do a terrible job of training and preparing leaders. Oh, that's across the board. Yeah. We're just horrible at it. And so no one wants to do it. It's a setup to fail in so many different companies because we don't train our leaders appropriately for what leadership is not technical Mm -hmm. leadership. So I see so many people that go into leadership, get set up to fail. And then everyone under them watches that 18 months of pain that they go through before they finally go back and take an IC role. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, that's not for me. I'm not doing that, man. (laughs) Yeah. It's like those, uh, scared straight shows. Uh, they send the kids to the jail. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) And when you watch it, you're like, I don't want that. Nope. Nope. No, thanks. (laughs) How many meetings do you have today? No, I'm good. Yeah, hold my pocket. Let's go for yeah. a walk. <laughs> especially at the C level. I mean, we set CDOs up to fail so oh, geez. just so massively. And so if you're at that director level where you're ready to learn and take the next step, you're looking at that saying, I don't want any part of that. It's lonely at the top, as they say, not for the reasons you think. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had a CEO said, if you want a friend in the C-suite, get a dog. 
Uh, yeah, there's mine right there. Um, yeah, that's yeah. I think we all have dogs, and there might yeah, be a reason for that. Might be a reason for that. That's interesting too, because I think um, well, data science still feels very immature from yeah. uh, a practice, right? So, um, and back to education too. One of the things that frustrates me is uh, depending on the professor who's teaching as well, they they may not have any inclination to want to change the curriculum, so it's. It may not be foundational stuff you need to know. It may not be uh, current, but hey, it's convenient for the professor because if they're writing off, if they're off writing research papers, teaching a class is probably the last thing they want to be doing, right? I've seen this firsthand where you know some of the stuff I saw was just incredibly outdated. Nobody's using it, but you know you can't change it. Tenured professor, so what are you gonna do about it, right? So the, the institutional imperatives at, at some universities, I, I would say, is, is counter to um, you know I would say the best outcomes for students and this kind of sucks because these degrees are very expensive and i and i totally agree too i you know i think that coming out with foundational knowledge especially right now when i, I think the ability to, to sniff out you know good results versus bad especially for large language models like there's never been a time where that's more important uh, than now so one thing i do with my kids is we go through um you know maybe story problems in math put them in the chat gpt and sometimes if the answer is wrong be like okay so find figure it out where to get it wrong right so it's flipping education on its head in a lot of ways i mean i heard uh, you know the other day somebody had a really good point where maybe you just um in the in the future it's like essays maybe they're they're wrong maybe it's a d grade essay and you need to go figure out why and make it an a level essay i don't care how you get there use chat gpt if you want but you know that's um it's flipping on its head, but if you're, if all you're doing is learning like uh, Hadoop still at the university, it's like, I don't know what to tell you. It sucks. So, yeah, I think, you know, I broke these up into logical processes and intelligent mm. processes mm. as, and one of the maturity models, of course, deals with this, which sure. is the, you know, the human machine interaction paradigm. Just really, there's a mm. maturity process there. When we use digital solutions, you know, calculator. And there was a backlash against the calculator. Everyone was worried, oh, this is going to replace your mathematician. No, it didn't. <laughs> but it deals with nice logical processes. If I tell you exactly what to do and the rules are consistent, you will do it every time. And so that's your tool. It's like a hammer. You know, you use your calculator just exactly like you would a hammer. You're just way more effective than you would be, you know, trying to put a nail in with a rock. So your hammer, your nail gun, sort of an evolution, but I'm still doing exactly the same stuff. So education wasn't really that challenged by a calculator. Right. Whereas this now goes to a different paradigm where humans and machines are teaming up and there is a almost a different role. So the workflows are changing. We're not giving up autonomy, but we are changing the way that we work now. And we're leveraging technology in a different way. And we don't design for that. We also don't think about implications. Whereas and when you look at where GPT is going and when generative AI solutions are going, it's the next level, which is collaboration, where we do mm -hmm. start giving autonomy over. But you have to know when to give autonomy. And if you're building for customers and users, they have to agree there has to be some consent to giving autonomy to your solution, which means a level of trust. 
there's, I mean, if you look at social media in the way that the algorithm now sort of tweaks your timeline, the reason why there's such a backlash is because people didn't give that autonomy. They didn't say, yeah, I'm good. You can curate my timeline. There wasn't that handoff because there's not enough trust. They don't realize, you know, on both sides, user and the companies that are doing this, that you can't just take autonomy away. Yes, your model's awesome, but guess what? The autonomy is still something that the user wants to hold on to. And that affects the, you know, and that's a, an ethical question at the C level. That is a strategy question at the product level. It's an implementation question. And so it's one of the reasons why all of these frameworks are kind of necessary because education institutes yeah. have to do the same thing. They have to look at this and they and intentionally decide, is this going to be a case where students team up with or where students collaborate with these tools? And how will that impact not only their educational outcomes, but the future of work? How are we going to prepare them? And especially you know, kids in elementary school and high school where work's still anywhere between eight and maybe more years away. How do we get them ready with these new tools so that they're not mm. left behind? You know, and you can't say that using GPT is cheating because I mean, it's out there. Yeah, <laughs> it's there. So we have to change the way that we teach. So we're not looking at testing for logical processes, which is what memorization falls into. And that's a lot of our testing and rubrics. That's why ChatGPT owns the SAT test, because all you have to do is memorize the answers and you're gold. Right. So that's all kind of going away. And we have these intelligent processes that we need to start training. And you, you pointed out one where you have to figure out, is this right? Is this wrong? And then how do I improve on what I was given? And so those are intelligent processes. And that's what we have to teach now, which our educational structure, not ready for that. No, no. And as, as parents, right. It's like, you feel a, like, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I definitely feel a, like, um, it's a sense of excitement. It's a sense of dread, probably the same as when you publish your book. Um, <laughs> it's a, uh, but you have to step up, right? What do you, what, the alternative is what, what are you going to do? Like not equip your kids, especially when like people like you and me who actually know how this stuff works and the power that it has, of course you're going to be, <laughs> you know, showing this to your kids and getting them involved with it. Right. I mean, I had, I, I gave a talk at uh, my, my uh, oldest son's uh, sixth grade class last month, um, you know, right before they were get, get out for the summer. And we talked about AI. So, you know, the first thing I asked him, well, what is AI? Right. And so, oh, it's going to take over the world. <laughs> that, that's unanimously the answer. And I said, okay, so I have, I have this uh, app on my phone called ChatGPT. So let, let me just pass my phone around, just ask it questions and let's go through it. You know, and um, I think very quickly they realized, okay, so this isn't like some ominous thing. It's not the Terminator. It, it, and it's actually kind of dumb. It didn't know a lot of answers and stuff, right? So it's yep. like, okay, so now you're starting to push the edge of where this thing is useful today, right? So now you know it, demystified it. And, um, um, you know, the things I told them is, like, you know, try and the only thing you can really do going forward is I can't predict what technology is going to do. I, I know where it's going to go. What I can tell you is you're going to be the same person today that you are in 20, 30, 40 years from now. And the thing you should really focusing on is, is like, be happy, try and just live a good life and be a good person. I think, it, you know, as the more things get automated too, like it, that's the only thing you really have at the end of the day um, that, that can't be taken away. So, you know, and I know that that was, um, it was kind of a platitude filled thing, but at the same time, I think it was probably the most realistic answer I could give is, you know, what's not going to change? Well, each one of you in this class, 
um, you know, probably going to be very similar to the personality you are now. So, yeah, I think the, the one consistent factor that is overlooked is there isn't anything we can do right now. I mean, eventually we'll get here, but right now there's nothing we can do that will give a machine learning model motivation, right? It is not internally motivated. It is right now and for quite some time externally motivated. We are always introducing motivation to it. So when we talk about, will it take over the world? Well, only if you ask it to, right. You know, if you don't want it to take over the world, don't ask it to take over the world. Don't, <laughs> you know, don't do that. It's not like it's going to wake up one morning and go, you know what I want to do? I want to rule the humans. It's never going to want that. There's nothing, <laughs> there's no, you know. You until the singularity, Van, until the singularity, so. Well, even with the singularity, <laughs> I, I think the one thing, you know, another assumption that I think we're making that's really bad yeah. is that the the intelligence that we build in these into these neural networks will be the same as ours. It won't. Right. No. If we're doing it right, it's not us. It's something different. That, for me, would be the definition of AGI is it doesn't simulate humans. It is a different type of intelligence that produces different outcomes than we do. Because if you want to copy, just, yeah, train GPT or just go on the kid. entirety of, you know, human literature, yeah. then yeah. you'll get, yeah, yeah, it's intelligent. It's just like a person, but AGI is supposed to be something bigger. And I think that's a, the other part we overlook, you know, it doesn't have motivation. Yeah. And when it does, it won't be like us. It will be a different thought process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like in my spare time, I like to watch uh, uh, videos of octopus. They're, uh, yep. I swear these things are like from outer space. If, yeah. if they were, they'd probably crash. A, a, all, all those like uh, UFOs that go into the ocean, that, those are just octopus colonies. Um, Wouldn't that be terrifying? <laughs> really would yeah, be. Absolutely terrifying. Really would be, yeah. Especially when you when you eat them. Um, it's yeah, that's not a good precedent. <laughs> not a good precedent at <laughs> yeah, all. We shouldn't be shooting down UFOs or eating octopus. I guess that's maybe two two rules. <laughs> Take away from the uh, podcast today. Um, yeah, don't shoot down. No, UFOs. but these things are freakishly <laughs> smart in their own ways, though. Yeah. I don't know if you'd watch them like get out of a jar before mm -hmm. or other stuff, but it's the weirdest thing. It's like, how did you know how to do that? Or you just disappear all of a sudden? Like they're. I don't know, but you're, you're absolutely right. Cause I look at these and I was like, this is, this is definitely obviously not human. Um, they are very, very, very smart in their own way. Uh, could they make chat GPT? Probably not. Um, could they do other stuff that we would recognize as intelligence? Absolutely. Could they, could they do things that we probably don't recognize as intelligence that is intelligent? Absolutely. Right. And so that's, I think that's one of the things you're getting at is like, you probably, you may not even recognize it when it, when it's there. So. And I think that's our biggest challenge is we're finally getting to the point where we can recognize signs of intelligence that don't align with exactly what we do. And we're beginning to define intelligence as not just what people do. So that's going to be one of the big shifts for us is, and I think there's two coming where quantum computing is going to make us look at the world in more than three dimensions. So that's going to be one shift when we start, you know, we really begin to think of the dimensions as more than just what we can see and physically interact with. When we begin to build tools to interact with systems that we can't do as people, that's going to be one big jump forward. 
And the other one is recognizing intelligence that's different than ours mm. and beginning to understand what to look for that's both intelligent and not human. And I think as we get towards more advanced AI, th that will be one of the things that pushes us to look at intelligence differently and broaden our definition. Because right now we have everything we have is very sensory and human specific and centric, but the universe be bigger than us. And oh, I yeah. think as soon as we begin to define things that we believe are uniquely human as more ubiquitous, more universal, those are big jumps that we'll make. What, what do you think this says to business kind of bringing it a full circle? Well, I think you look at companies like pharmaceutical companies or healthcare companies, hospitals, farms. Isn't it weird that you have to pay to survive? Like, mm -hmm. is that not a strange concept <laughs> that we have businesses that are optimizing for profit in charge of resources that should be optimized for keeping people alive? I mean, isn't that kind of strange? As it's a kind of construct? insane. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I think what data and AI will do for people first is help us, you know, it's kind of the same theme, help us think about these complex systems in new ways. That's the first thing as we get towards, you know, the concepts of causal, structural causal models and ontologies. We'll be able to look at these really complex systems in a human understandable way. And we'll be able to see them differently. And I think once we reframe these systems, that's what will impact businesses. So there's societal impacts first, where I think you'll begin to look at some of these companies and go, I don't want you to optimize for profit. Because when you optimize for profit, more people die. Right. So I don't want, you know, a grocery store to optimize for profitability. I don't want a farm to optimize for profitability. I don't want a pharmaceutical company optimizing for profitability. I want all of these things to be more public goods because they help all of us. So that's one side of it. And that'll have business impacts. We will look at ways to optimize for something else aside from profitability in some industries. In other industries, they'll understand the complex business systems that they operate in better. And so the closer we get to being able to optimize businesses, the more the cost of goods will come down and margins will increase. And we're going to have to come to some sort of a consensus on what's enough. Mm. Where do we cap profitability? Because you can optimize if you have resources like data and compute, you can optimize better than competitors can. If you have better causal models, if you have better ontologies, you can optimize and understand systems better than others can. And the others can't really catch up at some point. This is going to be a challenge for businesses over the next 12 to 18 months is you'll see this big just falling off of businesses because they're so far behind they can't compete anymore. And we'll, we'll have to decide as businesses, where's the optimization line? Mm. Where is it that we say, okay, you can't optimize beyond this. You can't because it's destabilizing. If you have investment houses or hedge funds that understand the markets so much better than retail investors or other hedge funds, that they have a massive advantage 
and they begin to optimize to the point of really minimizing other companies, pushing other companies, other investors out where the returns are so tiny that you either go with the monopoly or, you know, so there's, there is this construct of optimization and we're going to be able to optimize in ways that we haven't in the past. And for businesses, that's the change is the adapter die moment is now. And so they have to either decide we're going to do the tough things and be one of the front runners, or we're going to be part of this great business die off of companies that are just no longer competitive. And then once we've sort of gotten over that, uh, you know, Cambrian extinction event, we have to decide, okay, where do we stop? Mm. You know, what is, what's the ceiling? Where is enough? How do we begin to change the purpose of business so that it better aligns with the people who run it? And that's, that's the piece that we're really missing is we forget that people run these businesses. And so if we're like Uber is right now suing New York to avoid having to pay minimum wage to their drivers, which is, you know, that's kind of a, that that's dystopian. You know, we talk mm -hmm. about AI being dystopian. No, that's really dystopian. <laughs> I, my business model depends on artificially deflated labor prices. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That's really dystopian. And I think AI gives us the ability to solve some of those problems, but it's because we understand the complexity of the system and we realize what's actually going on versus the surface level sort of spin and marketing of what's going on. Awesome, Vin. Uh, great chat. Um, your uh, book is what, from data to profit. Yep. From data to profit. It is yeah. uh, out and available anywhere you buy books, I hope. And uh, <laughs> there's some differences in region. Uh, Europe's, I think, a year or excuse me, a month behind uh, the U.S. Yeah. Is available in U.S., Canada. I'm seeing some places in Asia actually have this stock. Oh, so no fairly, I think fairly I saw widely available. I saw a picture uh, of it at a bookstore too. Yep, that was um, that was in Singapore. Whoa, yeah, <laughs> did not realize that it's, it's it's global now. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a trip. Yeah. yeah. I hope it, hope it, hope it uh, takes off really well. So Thank you. Yeah, I need to get a copy really of it and read it. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Congrats too. I uh, know what it feels like to go to fit. You're going to write another book. Do you think? Depends how this one does, I guess. <laughs> if this <laughs> one is uh, more than, you know, a one hit wonder. If I turn into vanilla ice, I'm not, yeah, this will be, this will be the one. I and don't done think you're vanilla but, ice. Yeah. Nah, nah. He, uh, you're actually interesting. Um, so <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, he, he spun that one, one hit wonder into really being successful in other areas. But if he'd kept trying to do music, it would have been a horrible, horrible. Yeah. Career. Yeah. True. Dress for the job you, you want yep. not the job you have. Yeah. I actually saw him once in, uh, Provo, Utah of all places with MC hammer. Whoa. Yeah. Um, vanilla ice is possibly the worst concert I've ever seen in my life. Uh, <laughs> he did not play ice ice baby either. Surprisingly enough, um, he, he, he avoided that song. So he played all of his other crappy songs. So that's, what I mean, <laughs> the worst concert ever because none of his other songs were. Yeah. Anyway, uh, fun times. Yeah. So if I ever get to be that rich and famous, I'm doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to do conference talks where I talk about stuff. No one wants to hear. And yeah, one day, maybe 10, 15 years from now. <laughs> so you're like the, the jam band of, uh, yep. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
refused to play like the you know like skinner <laughs> play freebird no yeah that's funny though i mean i was hanging out with this uh um really popular dj uh who's been, he's 60 years old now but i was asking him you know how do you stay relevant and he's wow. been djing for 40 years um kind of helped create the whole uh electronic scene in uh europe but he's like yeah don't play your greatest hits is what he said number one rule don't play your greatest hits if you want to everyone wants to be the rolling stones right everyone wants you to be the rolling stones but the way you you got to keep killing you know your darlings and starting over and uh just don't mm -hmm. play your greatest hits because you start doing that then you're old you're, you're stale yeah. and predictable so i thought that was good advice i mean bill inman he, his first book that he wrote he said it, it sold like less than a thousand copies it was a flop right and so but he continued and so you know there, there's ways to do it i think i think you'd be i mean i read your subsec all the time i mean you have good stuff to say so appreciate it you got, got yeah i think you got a lot of good books in you but um i'm hoping the motivation yeah, hoping I, I gotta say there's you know people like you writing in public and working in public i don't think you understand how valuable that is to huh. the rest of us Oh because we, I mean, like I might not have written this book. I might not have agreed to write this book if I hadn't have seen your arc. Oh, wow. I may not have done this if it wasn't for people like you who have, you know, gone through the struggle in public. So the rest of us kind of know what we're signing up for because <laughs> when you write your first book, you don't, yeah. <laughs> you have no idea. And then sort of going through the arc of what happens after you publish what is it like to make a book successful? What did you do? I mean, all of those little things that probably didn't seem like much, they help a lot of us out. That's and cool. I wish more people would do what you did and put it out into public and not just, you know, the basic one-on-one stuff, but like the 400 level, the PhD level, here's how you, you know, you sort of navigate this thing that most people have never done before. Mm -hmm. here's how you come out the other end here's how you make it a success it, it, really valuable oh cool thank you well i mean i was inspired by you too i mean you, you write a lot and uh, you know and i think it's it's a fact i think that we're all public about what we're saying and i think that's the biggest the biggest threat i see to a lot of people is that they, they put a muzzle in them, on themselves for no reason it makes no sense right but people are scared they're they're shy you know yep. um, a number of other things that you know and it's um, you know, but it's hard. You can't tell people to get over it. It's, it's, it's easy to say, <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's like, Oh, you, you, you'll obviously get over it. Just go, go be public. It's like, that's the scariest damn thing for most people. And I, that's, but it's always going to be that way. I, I don't know what's going to change it. I think social media to some extent is helping it because people are a bit more public with, you know, putting themselves quote out there. But I, I think it, it's one thing to post pictures. It's another thing to post your ideas. Yes. And that's, I think people are afraid of being wrong. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I like that you do and a lot of other creators are starting to do now is talk about what happens when you make a mistake and not just, oh, I made a mistake and I'm so humble about it. No, it's you talk about, so here's the mistake I made and here's how I fixed it. Yeah. And, and I like that about a lot of your content. And like I said, it's it's starting to become more prevalent where people at senior plus plus levels in their career will say, so here's what I did wrong, but not just, you know, here's the bad consequences. It's, and here's how I worked my way back. Right. You know, here is the, the roadmap because there's way too much, you know, I made that mistake. Here are the terrible consequences. I've been where you are and look where I am now. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't help <laughs> because the real problem is the recovery process. How do you get back? So that's one of the things that I appreciate about 
what you share is it's not just here's everything that works. Every once in a while you throw in, here's something that didn't work for me. Here's what happened when it didn't work. And here's how I fixed it. Yeah. It, it, I hope more people do this too. It's just, it's the best tutorial you can find. You know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, cause I think it, it's, it's easy to live vicariously through people. Um, you know, especially, uh, online. I don't know who I live vicariously yeah. through anymore, probably some comedians or something, but, uh, um, but, but you know, it, it's, it, it's cool. And I think it, it's part of the progression of the data field as well. You know, yeah. I, I think we're, we're finally getting to the point where having conversations like this is, is a lot more normalized than it used to be. I mean, these kind of conversations we at conferences over like some, you know, I don't know, pretty bad catered lunch or something. And that'd be about it. So, yeah. you know, but now people like you and I are giving talks and, um, you know, and, and also I think more importantly, just being public, like you're, you know, you're, um, you know, Substack's awesome. I think it's a good, thank you. It's just a good, like, it's just a good rubric for people to follow. Right. So it's like, it's just, I don't know, but it's good. More and more voices out there. And, um, We'll see where it all goes. More and more voices. I, I see you also using ChatGPT to write their stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I feel like we're getting better at just get, detecting it, though. I, I feel oh, yeah. like I see it in the comments where it's like, did ChatGPT write this? And there's, you know, 400 likes. Uh -huh. and it's ratioing the, <laughs> the original post. You can tell, though. It's the most, yeah. it's, it's like a Hallmark card. It doesn't, yeah. it has no personality. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, now this crossover to where the boomer generation is kind of handing the, the baton to Gen X, I feel like that's going to accelerate this whole, you know, adoption of technology, picking up this sharing that really isn't a Gen X thing. It's more like a Gen, Gen Y, Gen Z, millennial type mentality. But I feel like a lot of Gen Xers picked it up. And so you have people in 40s and 50s who are building in public, sharing in public. I feel yeah. like this is sort of... You know, this is a generational shift and it's something that everyone's really benefiting from. So hopefully we see more of it. Yeah, hopefully. Well, cool. Um, for people who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Uh, Datascience.vin. <laughs> Thank you to the French wine industry for naming a domain after me. Greatly appreciate that. <laughs> I had no idea that's where that came from. That's pretty funny. Yep. Then um, LinkedIn, you're a, uh, I think, top voice in LinkedIn, right? Yeah, um, top. Uh, yes, top voice. Like in Indiana Jones, top minds. Yes, top voice. We're <laughs> 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 top people. Excuse me. They said top people will be working on this. I am I'm a top voice like Indiana Jones had top people. <laughs> that's pretty hilarious. I've never heard that before. Um, Yes, yeah, so you're on LinkedIn. Uh, I'll put a link to your book in the show notes. And uh, yeah, Thank thanks. You. Thanks for the fun chat, man. It's always great to yeah, catch thanks up. Thanks for having me. Really yeah, appreciate it. Anytime. All right. Have a good one. All right. Take care. All right. See you.